1 Samuel 24, we'll read the entirety of the chapter. If you would, please follow along with me. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way, where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as you shall see good to you. David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Afterward, David also arose and went out out of the cave and called after Saul, My Lord, the king! When Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb proverb of the ancients says, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog, after a flea. May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you. And see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son, David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, You are more righteous than I. For you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me, and that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he he let him go safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me, that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. Church, this is the word of God. Thanks be to God. God has been preparing David over a long season of time in the wilderness. He's been preparing him not to give him free reign to act as he would so choose, but rather he has been preparing him to be a part 
of his own divine plan. And the Lord puts David in the middle of three tests between chapter 24 and 26. So we're going to look at the first of three. That's why our title this morning is a test of leadership part one. It's going to be, Lord willing, two other messages that will cover chapter 25 and then 26. And these three tests of leadership are really going to display the type of leader that God is forming in David and the type of leader that we should also seek to be. It's important for us as we consider leadership and looking at God's word that though we may not all be the CEO of a big company or the president of the United States or, or carry some official title in our lives, we do need to consider the matter of leadership very seriously. For each one of us are at the very least led, but nearly all of us lead in some other context. So David's story carries great weight for us this morning. But there's a distinction here too. Remember, David is the Messiah. Do you remember this term Messiah is the anointed one? The one who's been chosen and set apart to save God's people from God's enemies. And as he's the Messiah, or the chosen one, it's important for us to remember that though there's that distinction, he's not chosen because of anything special about him particularly. Remember that phrase that we think of with David, that he was a man after God's own heart. And that literally in the Hebrew, what that means, and it's, it's kind of a confusing word order, what that literally means is the one that God chose after his heart, after God's heart. God says, this is what I want to do in my heart. And the cool thing about God's choosing in the Bible is that when he chooses, he always points out that I'm not choosing anybody because they're great or smart or really good looking or they have a lot of money. None of that. Think about his choosing of the nation Israel. He said, when I chose you, you weren't even a nation yet. So it is for us. God's choosing us for salvation in Christ is not due to the fact that he was even able, though he could certainly look into the future, he didn't just simply look into the future and say, well, I know this person's going to believe, therefore I'll choose them back here. No, he chooses us to believe. And so it is with David in this case as well. He's chosen David to be the next king, but there's been a huge gap between that moment of choosing and the realization of God's plan. And that's where David is. David's been in the wilderness over and over and over again. He's been running from Saul. He's been running after the Philistines. He's, he's been running all over the place. And in his running, he has had to lead. He's going to face a test of that leadership today. Now again, you might lead a team at work on a project. You might lead a household of children. You might even lead in caring for an elderly relative. But as a believer in Christ, you are primarily called to lead people to him. That's our calling. That's our reason for being here. So we need to listen well to these things that we read in the Old Testament. As we've discussed, they're written, as Paul says in Romans 15, verse 4, they're written for our instruction and our encouragement. That means that from this passage today, we should find something that we need to do and that we should find the encouragement that God is with us in the doing of that thing. Instruction and encouragement. Now, there's no doubt in the week ahead that you will be led and you will have opportunities to lead. And in thinking about 
the tests of leadership that we might face and looking at the test of leadership in this passage, I want us to think about some components of leadership this morning um, that are the words power and position. Because these are the things that David finds himself in, (laughs) in chapter 24. He has the ability or the power to do what he wants, doesn't he? What is it that he might want to do in this chapter? Say it in two words. Kill Saul, right? And he has the power to do that. I mean, if, if we, even if you just made it a perfectly fair fight between the two, who's going to win? It's obviously David. I mean, David is far greater a warrior than Saul ever was. David has the power. He has the ability to do what he wants right here. And in chapter 24, he also finds the position or the opportunity to do what he wants. Now, I don't like to get too far ahead in sermon series, but it's really interesting the way this section of 1 Samuel is laid out. I already said he's going to face three tests here. So if you look in your Bibles, I just encourage you to open up and look at, we're in chapter 24. Look at the, the heading in chapter 25. It's David and Abigail. Well, that doesn't really sound like a test. But once we get to chapter 25 next week, Lord willing, we'll see that David finds Nabal to be a total fool, as his name literally means. And that he has plans to kill him too. So a second test. And then the third one, if you move forward again to chapter 26, if you have an ESV or maybe some other Bibles have this title as well, David spares Saul again. It's interesting that when the Lord tests us, he doesn't really just give us like one time to learn the lesson, does he? I mean, can any of us testify that we needed to learn how to be patient? So the God, the God of the universe tested us one time. We figured it out. A plus, boom, no problems after that. That's not how it works. I, I, I loved teaching middle school, and I, in some ways, hated test day because there was always that concern of how are these kids going to do on this test? Because as a teacher, you think this doesn't just reflect what they've learned. It reflects some part of what I've taught, too. Right? Like, have I prepared them well for this? Now, God doesn't have that concern when he tests us. But certainly David has to face the pressure of a test of his leadership in this passage. Three he'll, we'll look at in this book. So, what's the test today? It's obviously revolving around, around Saul. What's the first test that he has with Saul? Now that he's been brought through chapter 21 all the way through to chapter 24 now, he's, he's been prepared, he's been equipped, he's been taught, he's been learning. His first test for chapter 24 is that power and position must be used in line with God's plan. How will David do with this test? We're just going to look at this passage in two sections, to keep it simple. Verses 1 through 7, the simple exhortation, the simple instruction, don't use power and position to take shortcuts. Then we'll look at verses 8 through 22, where there's the alternative given. Use power and position to be a voice for reconciliation. So if you want an outline, that's kind of the the split. It's not very even, but it's verses 1 through 7. Don't use power and position to take shortcuts. Verses 8 through 22, use power and position to be a voice of reconciliation. So let's start with these first seven verses. If you put your eyes on your Bible for a moment with me, please. The beginning of this chapter, 
has Saul finding out again where David has been hiding. And we'll remember that the pattern has been that when Saul finds out where David is, what happens next? Obviously, he goes after him. But then David finds out that Saul has found out where David is, and David makes a run for it. That doesn't happen in this case. So already we can see the, the tone of this. Like it's, it's breaking the pattern from what we saw last week where God is, is providing ways of escape for David over and over again, but now he's got to, in one sense, face the music. He's got to take the test. Again, thinking back to teaching middle school, and we had one student in our last sixth grade class. It was awful that we did this, but it was just too hard to pass up. There was just a running joke that every day that we had a test, this kid never showed up. He was always gone. And I would sit there, and I won't say his name. He is a beloved student of mine, and he's grown into a mature and respectable young man. But we would sit there, and I would inevitably be passing out the tests, and, and I'd st- every week I'd have to go, where's so-and-so? And everybody would say, where is so-and-so? Well, it is a test day after all. I mean, the truth is none of those kids really, well, I had a couple kids who really loved tests. I mean, they were big weirdos. But most of the kids didn't want to be there. And if they had a way of escape, they would take it. David, no doubt, would not have wanted to face this test. But he had to. There was no way of escape. Saul finds out where David is. He brings the best 3,000 soldiers he's got to come up against David's 600 ragtag recruits. And this doesn't surprise David at all. I mean, all he's got are these these outcasts, you know, these who are discontented with the world or with him, and he's turned them into soldiers into a pretty impressive fighting force, but no doubt they don't compare to the 3,000 strong best of the best of the best in Israel. Well, the author tells us that they find a perfect spot to camp right near where the shepherds would rest in this place called En Gedi. And it's in fact the exact same spot where the shepherd soon to be king was also hiding out. So again, The test is being set up by whom? God. God is setting up this test. He is sovereign in this. He is the one who has allowed Saul to find out where David is and not allowed David to find out that Saul found out where David was. And then to let them happen upon this perfect spot to rest. David's opportunity for a shortcut in this passage then arises. Now again, heading for this section... Don't use power and position to take shortcuts. This is the test. Will David take this opportunity? Will he take the position he's in with the power he has, the ability to kill Saul and the opportunity to do it and get away with it, seemingly with no consequence whatsoever? How is he going to do? Interestingly enough, this test opens up not so clearly as a shortcut as we know it to be. Again, we've already said with the kids that David was in a time of waiting. He was in a season of life where God was preparing him and now he's testing him. He's not to the throne yet. And faced with the opportunity, it was very easy for him to justify his actions. Look at verse 4 with me, if you would. His men that were around him encourage him. Behold, they say, this is the time that the... Sorry, I should just read the actual verse. The men of David said, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Verse 4. This is an interesting 
verse, this is an interesting set of words here because we could attribute this to something that God said about the Philistines earlier on. It's possible that that's what they're thinking of. It's also very possible that they just made all this up because God has never promised to do this. He's, he's, we don't have these exact words recorded anywhere. As far as we know, this is something that the men of David thought, this is definitely something God's going to do, and we see this circumstance and situation as the opportunity to do it. Certainly they've been running long enough. Certainly they feel they've learned the lesson. Certainly they don't feel that they need to take a test to prove anything when they've followed David faithfully. Well, what is the shortcut opportunity? It's a, it's a very interesting situation here. It's a very practical and down-to-earth situation that Saul finds himself in. He has a call of nature. He needs to find a private spot to take care of that. And he happens upon the hiding spot of David and his men, who again respond by saying, here's your opportunity. He's just walked into the men's room. Take him out. He's cornered. If you think about his, his Saul's situation of being stuck here, this is exactly what Saul interpreted David as in the last chapter. That as David went to go save the city from the Philistines, Saul's like, the Lord has given him into my hand. He's trapped there. There's only one way in and one way out. And certainly if Saul had this opportunity, he wouldn't hesitate for a moment about what to do. Saul had come in to relieve himself in the cave, and David certainly saw that this could also be a chance for him to relieve Saul of his entire life. David approaches stealthily, cuts off a piece of his robe, and verse 5 says, Afterwards, David, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Do you notice in this that it wasn't that his heart struck him because he wanted to kill Saul? Again, you could imagine that that temptation was there. Don't just cut off a piece of his robe. Really let him have it. Take him out, David. Shouldn't be too hard. David's conviction comes not before, but after simply cutting a piece of Saul's robe. And we could read this on the surface and just go, okay, you cut his robe. Whoop-de-doo. What's the big deal? Why is that something that, that uses such strong language that his heart struck him? Can you imagine this feeling of realizing you've done something wrong and the massive weight of guilt that can come in an instant sometimes? This is where David is. David wasn't going to kill Saul. He knew that was out of the question, even though he might have wanted to. He says later on, Saul is the Lord's anointed. That is, I know I'm the Lord's anointed, but right now he's also the Lord's anointed, which might have confused David, but the point that he makes is he's king. And for me to put my hand out to even disrespect the king by cutting off a piece of his robe would be to go against what God has ordained. So he's passed the test in a sense here, hasn't he? Saul's in the position of king, and even though David knew he would become the next king, it wasn't his job to make that process happen. Do you remember chapter 15 of 1 Samuel? When Samuel tells Saul, hey, look, you've disobeyed God for the last time. This is it. The kingdom will no longer be yours. His specific words are, God is giving the kingdom to your neighbor who is better than you. I mean, those are pretty crushing words, aren't they? Right? Think about in your life, if you walked into your boss's office and he said, hey, that project you're working on, you're really blowing it. So I'm giving it to Frankie over here who is better than you. 
I mean, these are, these are words that are true in Saul's case. He, he had multiple chances to correct, to course correct, and to align himself with God's will and not his own. As Samuel's leaving that conversation in chapter 15, Saul, who is on the ground weeping and pleading for yet another chance, reaches out for Samuel's robe, and what happens? Tears a corner off of it. And this is one of the, in in biblical scholasticism, this is a fascinating thing. This is something we would call a prophetic sign. That this is, this is something that God is allowing to happen that has this great message, but it's not being done by the prophet. Samuel seems to be turning around after this happens and goes, huh, just like you tore my robe, God has torn the kingdom from you. That little piece symbolizes that you've lost the opportunity God has given you. You no longer have the power and position to do what God has called you to do. You can't fulfill his plan. Now, back to 24, David sits in the cave with this piece of Saul's cloak, symbolizing his own grasping. So again, if we think about this in terms of a TV series, this would be the moment where the camera zooms in on the piece of red cloth brightly shining in David's hand and the glittering cave, you know, and then uh, zooming out to see his face, his reaction, to realize what he's done, the, the striking of his heart to himself that... He's taking a shortcut to God's plan. Symbolized his own grasping. Remember that from chapter 23 that we saw this word of the Lord establishing things in people's hands and giving things over to people's hands. And we got that message last week and now we see David acting in this moment very Saul-like. Grasping at something that he hasn't received from the Lord. So while we said earlier, okay, cool, you didn't kill him. That's great, David. You you passed the test. But David would say, I failed miserably here. Look what I've done to the Lord's anointed. His own estimation of using power and position has left him in disobedience to God. It's left him at the end of a shortcut that in the matter of his own heart and the working out of what God's been doing only reveals that there's so much left to do. And this is what shortcuts in God's plan kind of produce in our lives. When we see the, the, the pattern of how God works and, and how we're called to come to faith in Christ and to endure to the end and not give up and, and that the end could be years and decades away. I mean, some of us who have walked with Christ for years and decades upon them can, can you know, agree that this walk is not easy. We have to endure. We can't take shortcuts. Power and position are not given to take shortcuts in God's plan. But David sees the wrong he's done, and he sees a way to redeem it. So verses 8 through 22. I know this is a larger chunk, but it's going to go quicker than the first one because that first seven verses is so dramatic, and it sets up everything else here. So David sees the wrong he's done. He sees a way to redeem it. He sees that he could use his power and position to be a voice of reconciliation. And church, this is one of the, what a great picture of how God uses our failings and redeems them for his good plans. See, the, the cloth in David's hand represented his grasping after something that wasn't yet given to him. 
but now it's representing a desire for reconciliation. It'll represent an effort towards mercy in Saul's life. Look at verse 8. David arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, my lord, the king. Then it says he bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. Let's pause here for a second and think about the beginning of this chapter again. 3,000 of the best soldiers in Israel. David seemingly comes out of the cave by himself. And not only does he come out of the cave by himself, he throws himself on the ground in humility, leaving himself wide open to attack or any stray arrow that could end his life instantly. He's not using his power or his ability or his position or his opportunity to advance his own goals. He is lining himself up with God's plans and purposes. So he humbles himself. The remarkable thing, again, in this story is that David didn't just say, well, I messed up, I failed the test. Let's pack up and get out of here before Saul realizes what we've done. Instead, verse 7 tells us that he persuaded his men. And there's something super cool about this, and I love the ESV, but right now they kind of fail a little bit. I don't know if there's a better way to say it, but literally, that word persuaded means that he tore them to pieces. (laughs) I mean, he didn't just say, hey guys, listen, this is the Lord's anointed here. No, he said, what were you thinking? What was I thinking? Why would we stretch out our hand to harm the Lord's anointed? This is foolishness. This is rebellion, not only against Saul, but against God himself, far more important. He tore them apart. That's, of course, ironic because he's already torn a piece of cloth from Saul's robe. He tears apart their plotting to kill the one the Lord has put in authority. So from there, he comes out, basically putting himself at the will of the man who's pursued him relentlessly and was more than ever ready to kill him. David uses his power and position not to take a shortcut, but to be a voice of reconciliation. What follows then is a masterful speech. We have a lot to gain from it. We're only going to look at two things right now. Verses 8 through 11, David calls to Saul to stop listening to whomever he may be listening to. Look again at David says, Why do you listen, verse 9, to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks you harm? Then he says, Behold, in verse 10. He says, You're listening to people who are saying, Behold. Now I'm saying, Behold. Behold just means look. Look. This day your eyes have seen. He says, don't listen to what people have said about me and you. Look at what evidence is right in front of you. I could have killed you. I've never sinned against you. I'm not here to take anything from you. This is ironic again because what we're seeing is David holding this cloth that symbolizes his grasping of the king and what also ironically symbolizes God's purpose in the end that God's ultimate plan is that David will be the one in whom in Saul's words will establish the kingdom of God David has taken no actual steps to do that he's taken no violence against Saul he is waiting on the Lord that's his message and then in verses 12 through 15 he establishes his humble yet righteous position he trusts the Lord to judge their conflict he trusts the Lord to do the right thing He quotes a a proverb in verse 13 to point out that you can tell the heart of a person by their actions. Out of the wicked comes wickedness. What wickedness have you seen in me, Saul? David says. He even compares himself to a flea on a dead dog compared to the king. What are you afraid of with me? 
been running from you for years at this point. Church, we need to notice that David's approach, though he shows Saul what he did and could have done, was not coming from David wanting to prove himself better than Saul. He uses his voice to promote reconciliation, to try to heal that broken relationship, which I think any of us, if we were any of the the 600 men with David, would all go, David, you're crazy. You're even, we might even say, you're a fool. Why would you try to make things right with Saul? This is the Lord's plan. This is the Lord's way. Saul's reaction is surprising. We would expect Saul's reaction to be, somebody give me a bow and arrow. I'm taking this guy out right now while I have a clear shot. Instead, he confesses his own wickedness. He confesses David's righteousness. And we would love to see this as the end state of Saul, that that they would then skip back to Gabeah arm in arm, ready to to lead the kingdom together, that Saul would become a wonderful advisor and and, and a true fatherly figure to David, his son-in-law. But really, all Saul's reaction, I mean, because we, well, spoiler alert, it doesn't last very long. We know that this is a momentary respite. This is a momentary, eye-opening experience for Saul. And this is how his life has been, isn't it? It's been short little glimpses of being in line with God's plan. It's tragic. I mean, Saul's death is coming up in a few chapters, but really, in some ways, this is the most tragic moment in Saul's life, that he seems to see it and get it, but he can't endure in the truth. He says in verse 19, if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? The obvious answer is no. So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done this day. He then asks the same thing Jonathan has asked David before. Of course, David's going to say yes. He asks that David wouldn't wipe out his family line after him. David promises mercy. And yeah, they don't go skipping back to Gabeah. He takes the win, as it were, but they go their separate ways. Being merciful, seeking reconciliation doesn't mean you put yourself back in a position to be trampled over. It's a matter of not giving someone what they really deserve. That's the mercy. That's the mercy that's required in reconciliation. Saul deserved death for what he had done, not only against David, but think about all the other people who have suffered along the way as Saul went on this rampage trying to kill David, and David is merciful and seeks reconciliation because he sees that power and position is not to be used, is, is not for the sake of taking a shortcut. He sees that power and position are given to us by God to be a voice of reconciliation. I want to make sure that we've been tracking with David for the last four chapters. He's been fleeing Saul. He finds the Lord to be his refuge in the Lord's presence, in the Lord's faithfulness, in his surprising grace. David serves and saves those who are drawn to him, looking for that same refuge that the Lord reveals in David's life. And now, having been equipped by God, he's faced his first of three tests of leadership. How did he do? I mean, in the end, remarkably well. We can understand the striking of his heart when he cut the robe of Saul. But in the end, we go, I think he's in line with the peculiar ways of God here. David certainly would have felt felt in the cave of Adullam that 
God, what are you doing? What's, what's the purposes here? What, why, why am I in this cave? Why, why am I running over and over and over again? But I think it's in these moments of these tests where he finally realizes, oh, that's why everything that came before indeed came before. That's why all the trouble and difficulty and the running has been going on in my life. He's learned the promises of God for his life. He's believed the promises of God. So what about us? Do we have the ability and opportunity, the power and position to be a voice of reconciliation? Do we have the ability and the opportunity to bypass shortcuts? When we take shortcuts in our lives to try to speed up God's plan, it's like tearing Saul's robe, grasping at something that God hasn't actually given us. It's a good thing for us on Communion Sunday to consider where our hearts have been struck because of our sin. Because taking a shortcut isn't just a matter of trying to find out what the best course of action is. It's, it's a matter of sin. Again, we're thinking in terms of my relationship with God. And that there are things that God requires of me. He requires holiness. And holiness is not a shortcut journey. It's not, it's not that there's, there's A through Z or you can just skip from A to Z. We don't, we don't become fully sanctified at any point in this time on, on earth. That is, we don't become fully devoted to Christ, the place of our hearts. It's a journey. It's a process. And sin comes in and offers a shortcut. It offers us ways to blend in our old way of thinking, our old way of living, with this new way that Christ has given us. Sin, in essence, then, in temptation, offers us to return to our old ways of living so that we can enhance our new way of living. Shortcuts are the way of the world, and this is how it plays out. If I have an opportunity to get where I'd like to go sooner than I intended, how can that be a bad thing? We would say that the end justifies the means when we take shortcuts. Think about those cliff notes you might have read in high school instead of reading the book. Think about that house project where you figured you could skip a few steps so you could get back to the other thing you need to take care of. This is a hard one. Think about in parenting. When it's so easy to skip that step of sitting down and explaining to your child why what they did wrong was wrong. And it's so much easier to go, go to your room and I'll talk to you after dinner. Think about the general tone of our culture with regards to technology. We love shortcuts. We love things that will make life easier. But David shows us here, following God's plan is rarely the easy path, the easy option, the shortcut. We'd love to hit fast forward on some of the toughest seasons of our lives, wouldn't we? Do you ever wonder if there's a shortcut to feeling truly at peace? to deal with your financial crisis or your family conflict or whatever that thing may be, I think that when we look to Jesus, we see, like David, but in a grander sense, in a more fulfilling kind of way, that Jesus faced his own test in the wilderness. There he was offered by the enemy an opportunity to take a shortcut to his own kingdom. In Matthew chapter 4, Matthew tells us again, the devil took Jesus to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, and he said to him, all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Do you hear the shortcut in this? 
Fall down and worship Satan and you can have everything. We know Jesus' response is the right one. Be gone, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Worshiping and serving God then for Jesus meant taking the long road to acquiring his own kingdom. To acquiring what God had promised him and provided for him. That long road took him to the cross. And there Jesus passed just like he did every other test of leadership. Where sin would entice us to take shortcuts, Jesus kept his gaze fixed on what his father called him to do. The cross was the ultimate test of leadership. The ultimate test of relinquishing power and position to serve his father and not his own will. Of course, Jesus' will was to serve the Father. And he confesses in the garden the night before, Lord, if there's any way, let this cup pass to me, pass from me. If there's a shortcut to doing what you want, to getting your will done, show me the shortcut. But nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Not only humbly accepting God's way, but bearing God's wrath for our sins. Christ pursued God's plan all the way to his last breath where he could declare, it is finished. Our very salvation, church, is based on the victory of Jesus over the temptation to take shortcuts. He conquered those where we have failed. So where do we go from here? Are you going to face a test this week? I'd be willing to bet, not that I'm a gambling man, that you will face a test this week. Is there a shortcut you could take? And you should be pursuing God's plan? Is there a way to abbreviate a task, to make, make it simpler, to, to cut out some of the harder steps of something that you know you need to do this week? Perhaps, simply enough, we could say there might be a conversation that you need to have that you've been putting off, and you could certainly find all sorts of ways to keep putting it off the rest of this week. Don't take the shortcut, church. Maybe you need to reach out and reconcile with that person. Maybe you need to Cover all the steps of that project that's been on the back burner in your mind. But don't take the shortcut. Don't try to fast forward whatever season of life you're in. Because it is this season where you are either being trained or tested. God is doing that constantly with us. We don't want to skip the training as though we're not studying for the test. Look to the long-suffering, patient Christ. Look for where he's willing to endure this test with you. Because he is there. He's calling us to faithfulness in this.